The learning hack is on summer break, but don't panic. We're not intending to starve all you lovely people of learning-related content. Our mission in life is to help you stay classy by any means necessary. To that end, we're bringing you an episode of a fairly new podcast series that we like a lot. The series is called The Death of E-Learning, and it comes from Learning Pool, who the more perceptive among you might notice is a sponsor of The Learning Hack. But this isn't just a case of doing a solid for the sponsor. There are two really good reasons why we want to feature this particular episode, which is about a coder named Paul Stoner and his experience of dyslexia. The first reason is that we covered accessibility issues on The Learning Hack back in episode 59 with Susie Miller, and the episode had a great response from you all. Dyslexia was just one of the issues covered in that episode, but I had personal reasons for being particularly interested in that issue, and this is the second reason for featuring Paul Stoner's story. Listeners to my other podcast, Great Minds on Learning, might have heard me tell that I was one of three brothers who all took the 11 plus exam at school based on what we now know was fraudulent learning science and only two of us passed. Our youngest brother didn't and his education suffered greatly as a result. The reason why he didn't pass was not revealed until many years later. He had dyslexia but nobody picked it up. He's fine now, a well-respected counsellor in the health service, but the unfairness of that early setback has made me always keen to highlight the issue of dyslexia whenever I can. Paul's story is really fascinating, a great example of turning perceived weaknesses into strengths. Thanks to Stefan and Luke for producing it and for letting us do this podcast swap. If you like it, why not listen to other episodes of their podcast and subscribe, like, share, etc. So... Here's the episode. Hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to this episode six of the Death of E-Learning. I'm Stefan. And I'm Luke. And as I've just said, this is the Death of E-Learning podcast where we take a frank and honest look at the world of e-learning and try and find ways to make it better if that's possible and if it's within our power. Yes, yes. Our powers may be limited at times, but we do what we can, can't we, Stefan? Because that's all you can do in this day and age. Yes, and I think trying to do what we can puts us uh, in the top 10% of uh, e-learning producers. Oh, a lot, of people, a lot of people don't do what they can. You've just slammed a I lot of say. folks there. I know I did, didn't I? <laughs> Direct your abuse to oh. death of e-learning at learningpool.com. Um, that is our email. Please do use it. I've, I've made yes. a big note in red to mention the email because I always forget. Excellent plug of our email address there, even though that I've just offended 80 or 90, 90% of the population of e-learning producers. But anyway. More of that to come. Um, no, not really. It's a cracking episode coming up. We have a great chat. Um, Sarai gets behind the mic. She was from episode two, you might remember. She was part of our panel discussion on creativity versus productivity. Very talented graphic designer. And she was super keen to get back in the podcast chair. I wish that was really a thing, the podcast chair. The the podcast chair. Yeah, mm. we need to get one. Make it comfy. Yes. What What sort of chair would you envision? I'm thinking one of those gorgeous um, leather and wood 60s designed armchairs, I feel. But it should obviously be vegan leather because we don't really need uh, a cow or two to die to sacrifice themselves. <laughs> so, but yeah, one of those nice armchairs from the 60s. Yeah, no cows are harmed in the making of this podcast. That sounds lush. That no. sounds like a, a new twist on a classic. Um, so I'm not done plugging, Stefan, because that's all I oh, do. okay on like platforms like LinkedIn. As a businessman, I of course have a LinkedIn profile. Of course you do. And um, I met a school friend at a gig I was at a few weeks ago. And he was like, I don't think he even said hello. He was straight in with, oh, you post a lot on LinkedIn, don't you? Podcast this, the learning pool that. And I'm like, the learning pool. <laughs> uh, I didn't correct him. Um, and he said, well, I had to listen to it in the end. I don't know if he thought maybe that would stop me posting about it. Oh, Michael's listened. Great, I'll stop. Stop plugging (laughs) it. Um, But all he really had to say was, yeah, it was good, but God, the guy you present with, he sounds just like Chain Bear. And I'm like, 
who is Chain Bear? Who or what? And it turns out he's a F1 commentator on YouTube. I've sent you a clip. Play a quick clip. I want to know if you think you sound like him. Hello, I'm back. I went on holiday. I had COVID. And I'm recording this in weird little bursts because I can't stop coughing. But here we are. We've just had two great Grand Prix in a row. After Silverstone, Austria was super good fun. <laughs> oh my I kind of knew what he meant, but it's not the same. I totally get what he means. It was very similar, but I do think that I have some, uh, a bit more, a little, more, a bit, a little bit more depth than than Chain Bear, which is a strange name. But anyway, if you want to get in touch and with other Stefan Soundalikes. I'm going to make that thing now. <laughs> You're looking at me like, what can of worms are you opening here? <laughs> yes, exactly. A bit of side eye. Goodness. Um, death of your learning at learningpool.com. <sighs> but to business, this week's episode yes. is a great one. Our guest, Paul Stoner, he's a colleague of ours. He's a software developer at Learning Pool. And he recently wrote an article um, covering his experience of dyslexia. And we found out about this because it really made a splash, didn't it? It was... People were talking about it. People were sharing it. I think it really connected to people, didn't it? Yeah, against his expectation, as you'll find out, he he wasn't he didn't really think that there was um, that it was going to be as popular as it is. Um, but I think that if people hear him, they will hear very quickly. They will realize very quickly why the article got as popular popular as it is because Paul is an excellent chap. So, uh, also, this is Sarah's first time as a co-host, and here we are chatting to Paul Stoner. Shall we get into the businessy business of this episodia de podcast? Episodio, Stefan. Episodio. Genders. Oh, God, those genders. I'm learning Spanish, <laughs> and those genders, they just, yeah, it's oh, very, so. very difficult, you know? My friend was trying to explain to me how... Yeah, have genders within Spanish. It's so, yeah, it sounds there's a whole new kind of level we don't have to worry about, I guess, within nope. which is interesting. Exactly. Yes. And I <laughs> I'm I'm German, so I grew up knowing a set of genders to words in German, but they're not the same genders in Spanish. Yeah. They are very different. So Oh that's know, it, it, extra complexity. Yeah, there's, there's no it makes no sense whatsoever. Paul, welcome. So glad to be here. Uh, with you and spending this next maybe half hour to an hour chatting about the article that you wrote and what what sort of motivated you. You're Paul Stoner and you're a software uh, engineer. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So I um, started working for Learning Pool well, in 2018, so May 2018. No, okay. 2020, you know what I'm saying that. So oh, um, okay. yeah, so when COVID was... So I was interviewing around the time where that was all kicking off. So interviews were interesting because normally I get people into the office. So to quickly work something out. Um, a friend of mine actually interviewed here a week before. So went right. into the office, but then I had to kind of do it all virtually. So it was all interesting. Um, and before that, I'd been a software engineer for 18 months. Mm. I've been kind of doing it in and out of roles uh, for a little bit of time now. And yeah. where are you speaking to us from? Swindon. Swindon. So yeah. you are... You're home-based mainly, is that right? Yes, yeah, that's right, yeah. Okay, well, uh, I guess the first question that comes to mind is how or why did you decide to to write the article? How did the opportunity come, you know? Good question. Um, so it was for the... So we had the improved business objectives for our EDPs, and I was speaking to some fellow engineers. We're all the same, like, we don't... Yeah, very similar kind of bunch. Um, so I would, I normally wouldn't do this sort of thing like a podcast. Um, so I thought, yeah, why not? Um, yeah, how it came about was mine was one of a series of articles. So we all did a couple of each. Um, but the reason we did it was because we all agreed when we were approached by people about learning pool, by recruiters, etc., couldn't really unfortunately find much out as an engineer or find out how things are done. You know, if you Google, there wasn't that much at the time. So we thought, how can we get the company name up there? Because we would enjoy working here. The platforms we build are cool. Everything's interesting. We use interesting technology. We get decent computers, decent tech. We get to play with the latest tech. The code we write is great. Everything's done to a decent standard. Why is it not out there? So we thought one way we could do that 
we'll just publish some articles to Dev2. So people can Google Learning Ball, find us as a company, read a little bit about us as engineers, how we work, how we operate. So that was it to get the company name out there. And to be honest, I wasn't expecting my article to have quite the response it did. <laughs> it is it is great. As I told you before, I find it very shocking in the good way and not shocking like extra shocking. But, oh, that's good. <laughs> you know, very, very interesting. Like yeah. I think it opened my mind a little bit in this subject. We, we thought it was phenomenally interesting, different angle, and also slightly outside of the horizon of our daily daily tasks. But when you say you didn't expect it to have the response that it did have, what response did it have? How, how, did, it, how did it feel for you? What, what, what happened? I, I was expecting just to, we, we, we thought we'd share it with people in the general channel. And I thought I'd give mm. some thumbs up. And that, that would, you know, that, that would pretty much be it. I would have been happy with that. That would have been cool. Yeah. But instead, yeah. you have people kind of saying, coming along, going, "I'm also dyslexic," or "I've struggled with this." Oh, me too, kind of thing. And and those people commenting, kind of saying how they enjoyed it. And then the same also happened on LinkedIn. Um, people sharing it, um, and then getting more responses on those threads. Um, so literally, after posting it, I found that my Slack was blowing up with yeah. DMs and mess personal messages and stuff. LinkedIn was blowing up as well, uh, which was quite cool. But Leo, I just was not expecting it. Yeah, I was chatting to a to a guy who runs a, another uh, e-learning podcast uh, and talking about this episode that we are recording now. And he was like, this is such an interesting subject. Nobody else talks about this. Oh, you guys are so lucky. So, you know, this is something that is new, that is genuinely interesting. And it goes beyond the kind of surface level stuff that you sometimes find LinkedIn concerns itself with, I think. So, yeah, I think it's really, really brilliant. I think a week afterwards as well on LinkedIn, there was a, I think people started tagging as dyslexic as a skill, or it was something like that, to put it in your LinkedIn profile. Uh, or I think it was a drive for that. So it's funny, well, I was on about like putting up your CV and stuff, and I thought, oh, that was a bit mad, but then people didn't, well, okay, maybe it's not that silly um, saying that, but. It's something I do generally believe in. People should talk about it a bit more. I have friends and then there's uh, people in our team that are dyslexic. They tend to think, like you commented in the article, you used to think that you were thicker or thick as two planks yeah. or something. A lot of people with dyslexia tend to think that they are not very smart to say, you know, clear. So did your perception of yourself uh, think in any way when you got the diagnosis? Did it change? Uh, yeah. yeah. In a way, it was nice to know that I was dyslexic and nice to like, have the reasoning why, you know, I might struggle to read on the board so well. I was always fascinated by this as a kid. I could type on a keyboard using muscle memory. Give me a pen and paper. I, you know, I just forget words. Um, so it's nice to kind of know why that was, but at the same time, I was into computers. I kind of really wanted, you know, what your class is like an office job. But it then ended up leading me just to try manual jobs because I thought I couldn't do that. So I ended up working, don't get me wrong, I enjoy these things, but I ended up working at a garden centre for a while just because I thought that's what, that's, you know, like I can't spell in that. So, and then I tried, um, uh, I had an apprenticeship for a little bit as a fabricator and welder. <laughs> mm. I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> Um, and then in the end, so yeah, no, my perception did change, but if I'm honest with you, not in the best way, um, way it's only later on that I realized, hang on, this is actually not that bad if I embrace it. From the article, I'm getting the sense that it, it was your own drive of doing, or, and being encouraged to do extra curricular almost activities to automate your own workflow and your team's processes etc that was it was kind of like something that you wanted to do that you then that then changed that perception but that is it's it's luck you know this yeah. you you were you were kind of maybe discouraged from a certain path because of a testing system that is extremely word based and uh, they make assumptions on that of yeah. capability that aren't factual yeah. and it was sheer luck and whatever makeup that you are made up of that caused you to pursue this. So it's really, I find that very, very interesting. 
Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, that's the that's another thing that was oh, still bugs me to this day. Um, the fact that you we, we grade people right on how well you can write, write yeah. down with a pen and paper. I I get I hope that's changed now. We people are allowed like, um, you know, to use a computer during exams and stuff. Mm. But back then it wasn't. So uh, yeah, it's, it's almost like you felt like you were set up for failure a little bit. Yeah, it was only later on after those jobs. I just sat down with my dad. I was like, I don't really enjoy this. I, and he goes, Well, you like you like computers. Like you built however many computers. You enjoy messing around with them. Mm. Why don't you just like see go to some job centers and see if you can get a job? Just you know, doing something with computers. So that's what I did. I went to the one in Wantage, and I literally just walked in and spoke to uh, spoke to someone and said, "I like a job with computers, and I enjoy helping people." And he was like, "Oh, perfect! There's a company just down the road, um, and they're looking for someone to work in technical support. So you'd be answering the phones and helping people install software um, at schools." So I went for it, and then ended up there for about ten years. We went through a series of different roles, but mm. my boss at the time. She noticed that I wouldn't get bored easily, but I'd get all my tasks done and then wanted to do more. So yeah. as a little kind of reward, I was allowed to basically during downtime or when I got, you know, when there's no calls coming in things or all support cases were closed. I yeah. basically just sat there and refactored the, the internal UK um, FAQ site. Okay. So basically what everyone within the company would use um, to, uh, to basically, yeah, to, to look up common issues and, and things like that. So what does re, what does refactoring mean in this in this context? Ah, so um, I took like a clunky old website yeah. and spruced it up and made it in, remade it in WordPress. Ah, okay. Yeah, then it went through several iterations uh, because we we went for a free WordPress theme and highly customized it, and then the next theme was the next version was completely different. So then we remade it again. And it gave me, each time though, it gave me more chance to kind of mess around with programming languages. In the article, you mentioned that you had some mentors and I am wondering if you chase them or they reached to you knowing that you wanted to do these software tasks or how did you get these mentors? Just kind of click with them. So it would either be when they were, so a couple of them were engineers themselves. So it'd be when I was wandering over um, to ask them about uh, some issue with the software or some issue with one of our sites that I was supporting mm -hmm. and just get talking to them and just collect. So I'd then end up at their desk kind of just going, what's that then? Oh, what are you doing there? And then just kind of asking them a series of questions just through interest of like, well, you could have a go at doing this. Why don't you try doing this? Or yeah, and things like that. So when I was rebuilding like that website, for example, I'd go for them for advice. Like I'm trying to do this. Like how do I align this banner here? Or how do I change the background color and you know some little questions like that and then they'd guide me through it mm. and but those mentors were there all for a series of years and they kind of were there always as i went through a lot of the time the mentors could ju just be my boss they mm. might not have been like technically minded but they knew how to guide me in the right direction yeah so you got to them through your own initiative basically yeah, it was either tea room chat or when they were helping with a bug or something like that. At that point, or at those points, was it? Were you still aware of dyslexia as a barrier, or had it already kind of crystallised as an asset for you? Do you think? At that point, I think I realised I missed out on one thing on the article, which was a key part, where um, I then moved into a different team. So I moved. So I started off kind of in technical support, went into that second line, then it was a bit more like third line. Then I ended up on the content side, so publishing content to the, like the main e-learning website. So for the um, the primary content for primary school children, mm. it was then that it really I really then started talking to one of the mentors about how I could just automate a lot of this task because it was the same thing. I was doing the same thing over and over again, and some of it was uh, literally zipping up content. So like supplies would give us hundreds of eBooks. And right. then you basically just had to, we would then pay people last minute because it was last minute jobs, a lot like crazy amounts of money just to zip these files into a particular names yeah. from a spreadsheet. So I was just like, oh, we need someone quick, but surely I could just like automate this. And he goes, yeah, you could choose like a bash script. Just do it this way. Um, that's when it all started because I was like, okay. I've, I've done however many hours worth of work in 30 seconds. It literally, I just watched my computer just fire through, zipping all these files. And then it got to the point where then I just basically, so they always came with the same name. 
so that's where it all started when i realized hang on i could automate this and then it just went into like it just snowballed basically to the point where when i actually left the company to become a software engineer they didn't replace me my 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 scripts were me apparently i'm still there in the form of scripts (laughs) six years later they're still copying it and still using it Four years, yeah, almost three years later. Yeah. Yeah. Probably they have like a cardboard image of you and just a computer working. Apparently there's a city puppy that they remember me by. Like you know (laughs) a city and sweep? That sits on my desk somewhere. Yeah. Because I used to mess around with that on my desk, so (laughs) I I am there in the form of a yeah, city puppet. (laughs) Yeah, but then it kind of went on to creating spreadsheets as boring as it sounds but then using scripts to basically it was basically building lesson plans the system we were using all of that was just an id with some mess data that was it and you had to link it to its parent and form this pyramid that's when i realized dyslexia was helping me because i had this holistic i could just visualize it of like okay this is how many nodes i need this is how that needs to link to there so I then just basically made it into a spreadsheet for people to populate and then took it one step further you have a UI and you say what year it is, how many terms, how many of those link, automatically populate and generate them. It would then make the metadata and then you could download it and then throw it straight into the um, content management system. That's when I realized dyslexia was massively just sitting there on my shoulder, really helping me out there. Okay. So talking about you know dyslexia as an advantage now, how would you sell your dyslexia, you know, as a strength rather than a weakness in a job interview? How would you do that? I would say someone with dyslexic helps plug team gaps. That makes sense. So things that some other people might be or be good at, chances are a dyslexic person might be. So, yeah, the ones I put down in the article, um, you know, like spotting oddities and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For some reason, if something's... If there's like an odd one out, I can just pick it. I can just spot it straight away. I don't know why. Yeah. But I don't know. If that's I don't know. If that's dyslexia. That's the thing. It's, it'd be interesting if I could like swap, swap out my brain out and then try someone else's for a day. <laughs> you see what I mean? To see if it is. It's a the 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 line that you put in the article that you you've you've never not had dyslexia. You know, you, you've never you thought. Don't know, of, yeah, yeah. You you just can't. It's it's one or the other almost. So immediately, my kind of jumping to conclusions saying wanted to know is like, what 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 is it that makes you see things holistically and how does it kind of relate to the to the d- dyslexia it, i was maybe thinking that perhaps you look at things more in a pictorial way rather oh, than yeah. le- rather than the letters individually forming a, a thing you look at you, you see a word as a picture maybe that could be it you know things like that but yeah it's definitely a thing that yeah i have a very visual memory like mm-hmm. I can remember like certain moments, certain things that have happened just by where I was, just imagining where I was. And another weird thing I've got from dyslexia is um, my dad's had a fair few cars growing up. I can remember every single number plate of his cars yeah. from all the way up from his B red, blue Ford Fiesta. So all the way along. And, there's, wow. there's, and he doesn't, he didn't believe me until the other day, whereas um, I showed him that I, I could like on the MOT history website from the government, you can go on and you can look, look at, uh, history of cars but it came up yeah. with what the car was and the color and then he believed me he was like hang on you can't actually remember all these yeah. but i can just visualize the, the yellow number plate at the back um wow. and it's the same with code as i navigate code i might not necessarily know where to go from the reader reading it so much it's more remembering where i went if that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah. yeah really difficult to explain and one reason i got hooked on computers simple reason i as soon as you gave me a keyboard i realized i could spell so I just remember with my fingers. Yeah. Now, okay. just because this is an audio podcast and our um, esteemed listeners yeah. can't can't see your youthful visage, when did you finish school? Just to because it helps us put in context where where that kind of approach of learning and judging people for not being able to spell. You know, what sort of year did you did you get out of school ish? It would be 2006. Yeah, that's one thing I love about e-learn as well. I reckon if we had the systems that I was helping build or do now, you know, like with yeah, yeah, yeah. that learning pool, if I had those, 
I can learn so much more. Like I love like online learning. So like using Code Academy yeah. or Plural Site. Um, yeah. Solo. Yeah, I love using those online platforms, and it just cements it in. Yeah. Reading from a book. Just, I just have a headache within an hour, to be honest. Mm. Um, yeah. Then that's the thing. But that's the way it was still like that back then. Schools didn't really have good enough internet connections, and so it was just software back then, wasn't it? And they were from working in the software, to, well, supporting software. Um, it was a it's a pain for a network technician to install. And a lot of times schools didn't even have a dedicated network technician had to pay someone in to come in a large sum of money to install it on the network and then two weeks later it stopped working again yeah um yeah, it's just just schools networks are like that so you didn't have these you know websites and platforms and stuff yeah. Yeah. i i found very interesting because now there's a trend you know in not in code academy because i think you can do stuff for free but there are a lot of pages like you and me and stuff that are they are always in discount always selling courses so mm -hmm. if you are not careful you can go into the habit of buying courses and not finishing any of them yeah which is great and horrible for some reason yeah, yeah. yeah. but all the knowledge you want to to get is out there either is coding or art i think when you're talking about words on a page versus learning programs and online learning there's an awful lot of rubbish e-learning out there which is basically a transfer of a book onto a screen which has the same effect as reading a book uh, but things like code academy they have an application there is a there's a training element and getting involved thing which is which is i think the change you know i'm i'm into languages and before this recording started, we were talking about my Spanish and always getting the, the, the genders wrong. But that's because Duolingo lets me do it. And I love it because I, I can do it every day yeah. at my own pace and experiment a little bit. And, I, and the embarrassment factor of doing it in front of somebody who knows more than me, a teacher or whatever, is taken away. So there's, I think it's probably quite similar to those websites that you've described. That is true, it, and I love the on-demand learning as well. You know, like if I've got a spare, so you've got a spare twenty minutes or whatever, and think oh, I might just do some learning, um, yeah. or chipping away. You know, and having that, seeing the progression. Um, yeah. Yeah, and don't get me wrong as well. I quite like ones where unlock achievements as well. So you, you know, get little badges and things like that. Yeah. So yeah. Stacking those up over the years. For me, online learning. As soon as I discovered that, that I was away. Simple things now about you know, you can just Google everything, right? Uh, exactly. as well as an answer if you want to find out about absolutely anything from being discouraged to learn you've oh. changed completely to oh. kind of a learn hungry person you know yeah. wanting to proactively find out so I'm, I'm different to that person that left school all those yeah. years ago that's for sure i was put off by learning from school exactly and then i then once i started messing around like with html and stuff or just learning about programming that was it it just sparked something yeah that's the opposite with e-learning you can focus on what you really want to do in school you have to learn whatever they throw at you either you like it or not it's, yeah. it's learning it's nice knowing you learn it for yourself you don't have yeah. your own enjoyment rather than you just go do it for an exam and yeah. there's always that thing at the back of your mind where you think oh, i'm doing all this learning just for, to sit an exam and on the day what if i'm not feeling up for it and then yeah exactly. there's always that fear isn't there whereas yeah. if it's for yourself it's just just a bit of fun, isn't it? There's no pressure behind it. Yeah. Um, and you, you feel like you're bettering yourself as well, right? You're the skills, you're, and then you can then share those with someone else as well. So you can, that's my aim. I'd like to mentor as well, like my mentors did for me. That's what mm. I'd love to do. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like something uh, blowing, blowing our dear employer's trumpet again, but you're in the right place to be able yeah. to do something like that. You know, sure. Learning Pool yeah. is, the, is the place that this stuff's going to happen. Speaking of of the now and the where you are, you're not in third line support anymore. You're a software engineer. Give us a little bit of a of a, an overview of what your job has, where it's led you, if you will. You know what gets your juices going. What's interesting to you? What do you love about it? My favorite thing is finding a bug or a problem and trying to fix it. Just okay. trying different things to try and resolve the problem. Um, so we've had some recent performance issues with, I mean, the learning opportunity, we've had some recent performance issues. Um, 
and we were given like a list of things that could possibly help. Possibly. We thought they should make a big difference, but we weren't sure. And it was cool just putting those things into in place and watching to see if it impacted performance and just chipping away at code, learning code. You would have thought programming's very much, I'm gonna lock myself away and not speak to anyone. Mm. It's quite collaborative. Um, so you, we do a lot of pair programming. So we just jump on a call together, share um, a, an instance of VS Code, so our, our development environment, and then just sit and code together via a call um, and chat around things and chat around how we can make things better. And then do a little bit of that. Or you might have some isolated time where you just sit, concentrate and focus, listen to some music, or we have our um, kind of planning, more kind of planning meetings where we kind of design mm. new changes and the next new things that are going to come in for the locker. So it's a good mixture of a bit of everything. There's a nice variety. A lot of people think it's just sitting there and coding, but you do a bit of everything. Yeah, it sounds really varied and also really creative. So, mm. you know, there's a, I think the word coding has a, like you say, an insular sort of image that isn't isn't what it used to be. And if you're talking about, you know, like when you're, it's, it's almost like a, like a jam, I guess, with your with your colleagues. You know, when you're working together on on something, it's a it's a really also there must be mutual informal mentorships going on in that in that space where you look each, look at what each other is writing, what each other is doing, yeah. and learn from each other all the time, right? That's so, it. So we do. People think, oh, it's an art, you can kind of write however you want. There, there is a rule book. So we do define um, what is known like as an engineering guide. Mm -hmm. What that engineering guide contains, it should contain, ours does, is like a list of coding standards. So what we abide to, so what type, how we kind of define certain things, what style we use, like how we indent our code, how we style it, how we break it up, how we kind of put it into different modules, um, what we should do, like in proving it wise. And then part of that is we do what is known as peer reviews. Mm. So it's like a code yeah. review. So I say if I write some code um, for a ticket, it then gets saved. And then I ask someone to take a look at that and review it. And then what they can do is comment on it. So, um, and then say, look, Paul, this isn't within our engineering guide. You know, you should use this type of function declaration or something. Yeah. Uh, that name is not very good. And then, you know, we kind of go back and forth. We're always talking on Slack about problems or ideas, helping each other out if someone gets stuck. Yeah. yeah. It's... These engineering guides, do you approach them differently to people who haven't got dyslexia, do you think? Or is does it play a role? Yeah. Should be. Uh, I think it helps because of the visual aspect. Mm. I think it makes it easier for me to remember the structure and how we prefer to have the structure of our code. So I don't slip up and put the wrong one in. So, well, talking now again about the dyslexia, I mean, working in learning pool, we would like to know how do you evaluate, you know, e-learning courses these days as a person with dyslexia? Do you think, you know, they are okay, they are accessible? One thing I look out for, which instantly puts me off, I understand I'm quite different from other people. I'm not a fan of loads of videos for some reason. Okay. Yeah, no, I like it interactive. I like the, like, that's why I quite like Code Academy. I like, you know, actually writing an ID yeah. and telling me what's wrong for some tests. But I don't mind a couple of videos. Weirdly, I actually prefer some text because I I set up my machine. I prefer reading through it because then I can proper, I can look at each word individually mm -hmm. and take time to really understand it. Whereas okay. with a video, you might find that I find I miss out on information. Um, but I do have things set up. I, I think I said in the article about um, I like to use something that kind of inverts my colors. Yep. So, yeah, so I have like black background, white text. Um, and with that, honestly, it stops the words moving around for me instantly. So that just having that means it's magic. I can just I can read and it's a lot less eye strain. Um, yeah. Um, and also as well, I have a plugin which I can turn the dysle uh, dyslexia font on and off. In the article, you comment that you tend to use Verdana. Yeah, or... exactly. Yeah. Is is there something specific in a font that make it dyslexic friendly? I'm not sure. I know there are certain fonts like this uh, Verdana that that can help. And for me, that's my my font. If I'm reading a long article or I'm using a Kindle. 
the dysle- open dyslexia font for me is the one that's that's really good. Okay. The reason I try not to use it too much when coding in my IDE is because if I'm screen sharing, oh, yeah. people who are people who aren't dyslexic, I, it's not the easiest font to read. I'd, so they'll be looking at my screen and sharing, and mm-hmm. it's just going to be confusing for them. They're not, but yeah. Um, so that's why I try to use Verdana. So I'm kind of it's helping me enough that then if I need to screen share or sit side by side with someone, it's yeah. everyone can read it if that makes sense. Like we're not you know, jumping in code on it. Uh-huh. You're being very considered, con- yeah. considerate there, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, did, I found it didn't make a big enough impact as well. But for reading, I find it really helps. But then for coding, I didn't I didn't like it as much. I preferred Verdana. Yeah. Uh, but I quite often switch between settings. I try different things. That's another thing. I just constantly think, oh, that might help me. And I'll just try it and see if it works. Yeah. Um, and then I have a cutoff point of normally about a week. So I'll proper try something. And then if mm. I don't, I set a calendar reminder at the end of the week and I'd probably, I might drop it. Um, just start giving it enough time to try it. Yeah, well, as a, you know, as a graphic designer, that is like extra interesting because when I was studying the degree, I remember that they commented something like, the more difference you have between the B and the D or the Q and the P, yeah. it's easier. But uh, apart from that, I didn't know what else made it, you know, easier for dyslexic people to read. So it's good to know. Also colors, you said that it, it is important. I didn't know about the color thing. Yeah, for me, so. it's um, a huge, it makes a huge difference on a black background, dark background, white text. And then you can, I think some dyslexic people for like reading uh, a book or so, they used to do those overlays. So I think my color was purple, if I remember right. Um, so you basically, so you had like a choice of like a green, blue, green, yeah, purple mm-hmm. kind of overlay. Yeah. And then that instantly helped as well. I think that was the, um, the old school way of doing it. Um, but yeah, now, yeah, I just basically invert my colors on all websites. Yeah. Some websites look at, bit funky <laughs> so you yeah. switch back but yeah most of the time it's, it's compatible it's fine i know that we've done uh e-learning in the recent past where we this was just uh one course and the same content was available with different color overlays because the the um the client had had requested that so now with with you changing it is it the when you realize that something has been going on for, you've been working on something a long time and it's getting a bit stressful or intense and you, is the change the thing that makes it better? As in just that it's something different if you switch something sometimes, or is it the way that it's changed? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I see what you mean. It's like the, the some switch up kind of thing makes you yeah. kind of, it gives it a bit of a different angle. That's what I was thinking, yeah. It definitely helps. It's also a thing with computer games I found. If I change certain settings on that, yeah, it, I'll instantly definitely. be really good and then kind of swap down again. Uh, so yeah. yeah, no, it definitely is a thing. Um, for me, I a lot of things I try to I try to keep with the same thing, but then just make little switch ups kind of thing. But yeah, no, I have dark mode on everything. Um, yeah, and I recommend to anyone who has eye strain. If you get any sort of eye strain, maybe it'll help as well. <laughs> you get headaches and. No, I agree. I'm I'm using dark mode all the all the time as well. Also, it saves on batteries. If you're on your, fo- on your phone, it saves it saves your phone battery because it, there's less backlight going on. If you've got an OLED OLED phone screen, you, it, it it does make it last a little. It ekes out your battery time a little bit. Saves the environment, so we're helping the environment as well. Exactly. Though, yes. <laughs> good. Which is good. Now you. Well, you, you've been told or you may be aware that this podcast is called The Death of E-Learning. Yeah. And, yeah, and, right. and, our, and the last question we always ask everybody is like, you know, we've just been talking about the good things and the challenges, etc. What's the bit of e-learning that you think, yeah, I could do without that? What would if you could throw something in the bin? What, what would, would it be? be? <laughs> I guess it counts as e-learning. YouTube videos okay clickbait oh. ones you can w- learn this topic or say react in yeah. five minutes and you watch it and you get to the end of it and you're more confused than when you started <laughs> yeah. because what they try to do is basically it's only because they, they, they know that people i guess look at for a quick win right so you look at the five minute one 
Yeah. But then they talk so fast and miss out so much context. It's just like, okay, I've now heard about these things, but now I don't know about the other things that I knew about before. Yeah. Now I'm more confused. Those those videos, because you think, oh, this, this video on this particular subject is going to teach me in 15 minutes, but quite often I end up just being more confused personally yeah. and wish then end up having to pick it up on a proper course. <laughs> or, or you go and find the hour-long video, sit and watch it, and then you know what you need to know. So it would be clickbait. I think it deserves yeah. it. Yeah. yeah Good answer. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Unrealistic, oversimplification, clickbait yeah. kind of thing. That just yeah. end up, they're so s simplified that you end up just so confused by the end of it. Yeah. You then end up then spending more time just trying to unwind the confusion <laughs> by watching yeah. more, if that makes sense, and just jump into that hour-long video or just go into a proper course. Yeah, exactly. But because the people making money by YouTube, don't get me wrong, it's awesome. That's, but... Of course. But in those instances that you've described, it tends to be that the disappointment that rests with you, you're kind of annoyed yeah. with your, with the, or the, the viewer are annoyed with themselves for not understanding, not getting it, you know, and it, yeah, it must be it must be frustrating. Those, those kind of videos. I know you can't even downvote on YouTube either. No, no. <laughs> that's true. That's right. That's true. Yeah. So you're only going to get the thumbs up, and then it just leads to more of it. <laughs> but being honest, if you find a 15-minute YouTube video that I promise you is going to teach you how to code, I think if you believe that, you're a bit naive. Yeah, we've all learned the wrong. We've all learned the hard way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, Paul, thank you so much for um, for joining us. It's been super interesting, and uh, yeah, I think we'll be in we'll be keeping in touch the, the the podcast team and you because this has been such a fascinating discussion. So, okay. um, thank you again, and have an amazing weekend. Yeah, you're welcome, Ian. Thanks again for having me along, and hope you both enjoy your weekends as well. Bye, bye. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. So that was me and Sarai talking with Paul. A lovely discussion, actually. I really enjoyed that. It was really nice to just hear about someone's story, someone's journey, what they thought was a weakness and how it came around and exposed itself as a real asset. It was it was lovely to hear. And he sounds just like a really nice man. Yeah, he, he really did seem like a lovely man. And also he was, as, as he said, he was nervous about coming on the podcast because he'd never done it before but you couldn't tell could you i mean i feel like he seemed like the most natural person to be behind the mic ever big shout out to paul if we ever need a sidekick he's he yeah he gets uh, an audition for sure sidekick paul definitely i might need to uh, ask him if he's interested yes <laughs> i love that bit about how he left his job but his role kept continuing he'd automated so many things I mean, that's when you know you've left a legacy, isn't it? When you leave and the work carries on. <laughs> you know, he was very kind to the people that helped him along and talking about making what others perceived to be a weakness into a strength for himself. But what he didn't call out, and I feel like maybe it deserves calling out, is his own force of nature, if you will, that he, um, that he actually did continue to grow, continue to seek out these challenges and do work that wasn't part of his daily role. He did push himself to try and succeed and, and, and go in the direction that he wants to go in. Yeah, a lot of it did come from him, didn't it? Like things he found interesting, he asked about and he didn't... Exactly. Nobody would have approached him and said, hey, let me tell you about this. He had to do that. So he created those opportunities for himself. And now look at him in the learning pool, which is where we all want to be, right? Exactly. You know, I bet my previous boss, I used to work in a camera shop years ago, would have loved it if I just automated me back then. Like, if I just made a Luke bot and uh, he was still there now, just selling cameras to people. <laughs> it was really interesting as well to hear about the advantages that Paul's dyslexia gives him. The It sort of um, gives him that new perspective and allows for a more focused mind in some things. Like, whereas, whereas reading becomes a bit of, can be a bit jumbled and, and difficult, it's, it's like he's got the opposite brain to mine. Like, he can think and solve really complex problems, but then struggle, I don't know, doing the write-up about it afterwards, mm. which is the bit I could do. So, 
I mean, together, we'd probably be unstoppable. Yeah. Another reason to get him in is the sidekick. <laughs> I've actually had a few conversations with uh, colleagues and friends who are dyslexic and they have mentioned very similar concepts and feelings and, you know, that kind of looking at things from a pictorial point of view, from a higher level and getting it immediately that Paul also talked about. Mm. So I thought that was, there's definitely some commonality there. And uh, I thought that was really, really interesting. It's also nice to just be reminded that the internet, computers, technology has really done a lot of good for a lot of people. Like the fact that he can just be at home using a keyboard and a computer, but with a pen and paper just, you know, would really struggle mm. it's i think it's easy for us stefan when we're always talking about what could be better in our online world to appreciate the fact that it's actually made a lot of things completely accessible for people that would have found i don't know that just would have really struggled in other Absolutely. using other tools it continues as well you know it continues to to progress and i think that technology will get much better at, at uh facilitating kind of almost leveling the playing field and and people like Paul are instrumental in that because they see that they bring a different angle and they create they Paul works in tech Paul create creates technology so he will be mindful of those differences and others as well other differences so I think it'll be almost accelerated as more people like Paul who are strong enough to turn what um, perceived as weaknesses into strengths and then push them forward and create things to help themselves and help others. Yeah, which brings me to that, thinking about how he joked that it was something he was going to put on his CV, but really that different perspective is helpful totally. and um, you know should be appreciated and, and talked about and acknowledged because it can only make things better for more people. I bet there are people that don't even realise they're dyslexic. Like That's the most upsetting thought is that some people like was touched on might just think oh i'm just i don't know i'm just a bit thick yes yeah. and it just painfully isn't the case is yeah it? no absolutely and i bet there's people now mm. however many years later who are still at school and still think feeling the same things you know this i don't think this has been completely eradicated everywhere no do, do they, in schools do they still have to write essays by hand all essays because it seems a bit nuts doesn't it considering in the world of work we're never having to write no. <laughs> things by hand, are we? No, we don't. Why are, they, why are they doing it in school? True. I don't actually know if they do, but I'm guessing not everybody always has a laptop. But I'm totally speculating. It's been 150 years since I was at school. so <laughs> Obviously, there should be a mix, but in one of my A-levels, I had to write four essays in three hours by hand. And that was just... Oh, God help the person that had to like read them at the end. Yeah. I always thought that. An, an utter mess that was. Yeah. Anyway. So Paul answered our death of e-learning question. What part of e-learning would you like to see the death of? <laughs> and can you summarize what he said? Yeah, he mentioned wanting to bin YouTube videos, particularly the the short, punchy ones that promise an awful lot. They, they, they try and tackle something really complicated in two minutes and... They don't. They're basically just uh, clickbait that at the end of the video leaves you more befuddled than you were at the beginning. Yeah, I think you've got to take some responsibility for that too. At least I do, because it's like I'm always looking for the quick fix. Of course. The thing that will tell me the thing quickly. But then it slowly dawns on you, oh, this is not something I can learn fast. But what came to mind when listening to that as well was the videos that do it the other way around, that overcomplicate something simple or, or add fluff. Um, as a learning designer, a lot of our job is to cut out fluff. And so it's particularly painful, I feel, when we're watching things like YouTube videos that just stuff it full of stuff that doesn't need to be there. Yeah. I just got back from a, a festival, Stefan, and I had that festival wristband and I wanted to get it off, but I wanted to know if there's a way you could do it without cutting it. And my gosh, <laughs> this YouTuber, oh, he was like, it began with like, hey... So we all been to festivals, festivals are great, and they give you these wristbands, and we all want to know, how do you take them off? And it just went on and on. He was like, look at these ones that I've got. I took these ones off, and it carried on. And then he starts talking about his sponsors and subscribers. And it was about five minutes in, he then goes, so how do we take them off? And I'm like, 
Man. I'm already getting impatient and you only and you're only telling the story. Yeah, so annoying. I want I want to know. <laughs> did you get it cut off? Did he did he actually deliver in the end? Do you know what I did at that point? I just went, "Oh, and just cut it off with scissors." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "You've not won me over, man." If he'd got to the point, he could you could have saved this poor wristband. So get to the point. Yeah. And yeah, a good answer from Paul, for sure. Um the misleading things that uh you know pertain to be helpful and aren't that's that's a very good depth of answer yes i agree oversimplification is just as bad as overcomplication so uh neither is useful and they're both equally frustrating and if you have an aspect of online learning that you want to see the death of do send it to us death of e-learning at learningpool.com we always appreciate your thoughts bit of input um and if you send us a really good death of answer we could send you a t-shirt couldn't we stefan it's it's not out of the range of possibility no if we find a if we if we get an email and you've really convinced us you will get one of our fabulous death of e-learning t-shirts you just did a much better job of selling that i think stefan fabulous indeed they are so please do follow this podcast if you enjoyed it i hope you did um i really liked listening to paul's story and it's something we hadn't done before. It felt like a, a trip down someone's memory lane. And I've really liked that format. Yeah. I thought it was it was nice. It's just nice hearing about someone's journey from uh, school to garden centre to the big old learning pool. Um, and we give you something different each time. We're all about that variety. But it's, it's about looking at the world of e-learning and trying to work out what could be better. That's the heart of what we do. That's right. So please do follow the podcast. Give us a rating and share it with anyone who may be interested because you know, Luke, that I get upset if I see our stats go down. Oh, you do. Constantly refreshing them. Yeah. Yeah, that would make you very sad. So tell your friends unless you want to make Stefan cry. What made me very happy was a couple of weeks ago when we were briefly in the Apple Educational Podcast Charts in Hungary. So yeah, we're big in Hungary, which is great. Big up to Hungary. Yeah, I enjoyed getting that text, just like, we are charting in Hungary. And the ideas of a Hungary road trip and podcast tour were just flying through my mind. It's going to happen. Um, if you're from Hungary, love to hear from you. <laughs> Definitely. Thanks again to Paul Stoner. A great guest. It was lovely having you on and so nice to hear your story. If you want to read Paul's article, um, look up Paul Stoner, Learning Paul, and it will come up. It really is worth a read. Absolutely. And listeners, we'll hopefully see you next time where we'll tackle something else in the world of e-learning. We'll ask what could be binned and we will continue to endeavour to make our e-world just a little bit better. Darn right. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Goodbye.